Welcome to Space Waffles. I'm Arzu. I'm Candace. And I'm Hope. And happy Rebels Remembered Week, everyone. I know we're a few days early, but, you know, we are a Tuesday show, so we're getting in a few days before Rebels Remembered. Unless you're listening to this after Rebels Remembered, in which case, welcome. So, in honor of Rebels Remembered, I have the two biggest Rebels fans I know here to talk specifically villains. We've gone back and forth a little bit on the thesis of villains, but... Knowing our tendencies, uh, villains seemed like a natural place to land for Space Waffles' first Rebels Remembered episode. So let's just let's just dive right in. Who wants to kick us off? I can open up with my thesis. Open up with the thesis, Hope. <laughs> so what I love so much about Star Wars Rebels is it gives us our fullest look of the Empire in just about any media outside, of, I would argue, Lost Stars. Um because there's, I, and I originally when I was telling them about this, I was like, there's the three branches, but no, really, uh, there's four branches of the Empire that we really get to dive in on. One is the military side, which is the obvious one. So those, And we get to see just about every level of the military, from the stormtroopers to like the middle management to like the higher ups. Um, so it goes from the stormtroopers and then you have like Aresco and Grint and then Lieutenant List is down and they're your middle management, which all play a very specific role in the Empire and why they hold those titles. And then you get into the higher ups, like the Tarkins and the Thrawns. Um, the second branch is then your government branch. So you have people like Minister Tua. Um, my actual, they can't, you can't see it, but it says Tua deserves better on my name because Minister Tua is my girl. Um, and she plays an interesting role, but you also have people like Governor Price. So you have her as a government agent, and you could even throw in Ryder Azadi, um, who is who is technically an imp- an imperial because he was the working governor under the Empire. Um, now, what's interesting about Ryder is he's not a villain, of course, but he used horrible tactics to blackmail people in the name of the rebellion making him a very gray character in the throne book by throwing an innocent woman in jail and putting price on her villain path so that's a very interesting position for him you get to see the media as part of the government as well because we have characters like alton castle being the propaganda machine and that they're part of the government the third branch is the the I call them like the third party branch, which is like the Mandalorians. So people like Gar and Tiber Saxon, they work for the Empire, but Mandalore is still very much its own place and its own government. And so they don't quite fully follow all of the rules, but we've also seen the ripple effects of what happens rippling into shows like the Mandalorian of what happens when you don't follow the empire's rule as a third party branch. And of course, then the fourth branch is the force users. And you see the lower people such as the inquisitors, the middle management being the grand inquisitor. And of course the upper management being Vader and Palpatine. And also, um, Oh, I forgot to pull up his name. The minister guy in the world between worlds who's digging up the, um, the digging up the temple. Um, he's also in the force branch as well. Um, and so I, I find that really fascinating with rebels is we get to see so many different facets of the empire, how good people use the empire for their advantage. So people like Ryder and Eli Vanto, I can, I consider Eli Vanto a rebels character because he's, he's not, tied to Thrawn, but he's, he's tied to Thrawn, rebels. but he's tied to Thrawn in price. He's in mm. that timeline. Um, cause, cause that's where Ryder, um, actually screwed over over in the, um, was in the throne book. So I, I consider that Rebels lore. 
personally. That's just hope lore. Okay. Um, so like so we get to see how good people use the empires like Ryder and Eli, but also how lower, middle, and upper management use it as well in these four branches. And I, I find it incredibly fascinating. That's all within one show and the supporting materials. What I find most intriguing about the Star Wars Rebels villains are like great, uh, like Hope was saying, that they are a lot of gray characters. There are mm. a lot of people who are enemies turned villains, um, enemies turned um, allies, allies turned enemies. And that's just like what happens during war and during these difficult times. And yeah, like we have Agent Callus. Agent Callus is my mm. favorite example. I love him. The mutton chops, the voice, the the cow like that hashtag hot cows. <laughs> the redemption, <laughs> yeah. the redemption are living redemption, living living redemption. redemption yeah, mm -hmm. and just this fact that like it shows people can change, people learn, and yeah, it's how also how the empire kind of puts the wool over their employees' eyes and how they manipulate facts and change history and callus realizes he's on the wrong side of it and he makes amends and that's just very powerful to see and i really enjoy his relationship with zeb and how he integrates in the rebels crew and how at the end he's on his honeymoon with zeb oh they're my favorite boyfriends that's like that is like my that's just brother. my again that's hoping <laughs> candace hey canon but real canon let's just say Mm -hmm. um, y'all know I'm not the world's biggest like Rebels fan and even I ship that like yeah, so obviously not? in love how can and you know to, to kind of riff off I mean, that's how I feel about Tua um, that, that's actually like why I love season one so much I, I know like I, I'm in the minority season one's my favorite season I, I know I'm in the minority for that but like that's one of the reasons why I like it because we actually start in the it, it's a step up you start in the lowest of the ranks because Lothal is this unimportant backwater planet so you can see how the empire functions where aresco and grint um because we know from supporting materials that the empire purposely sought out bullies and people that had been scorned by the republic to put them in positions of power because they just needed warm bodies to like fill out those those places but they also use propaganda as well so we really see this in Oresco and Grinch, who are the, these like two doofy characters, um, but they're bullies. You know that they're on Lothal in charge of Lothal purposely to bully the people, and that is their purpose and that is their function. But then you have someone like Tua, and I love Tua because she could have been a Callus because she was on her way to being a Callus, and she's actually incredibly important that early on but, as that government official. Wait, wait, wait. Was she on her way to be a Callus, or was she on her way to save herself? We don't know. That's the thing. That's my that's my thing with her. Callus put his life in danger to go to the rebellion. Well, but she never she, got a chance to. But no, she realized her life was in danger. She's like, I gotta call the rebellion up. Yeah. And what I find what I like about her though is we know that she was a propaganda child. Um, and from a lot of the supporting audio dramas that came out with rebels, um, we know that Tua actually used imperial funds to help people of Lothal. She made affordable housing for the poor, which was actually going against like Tarkin's plans of like putting them all in factories because she she truly loved her planet. She wanted to help her people and use these funds to do so. And she does do shitty things along. Um, she does use 
um, these funds to help her people because she loves Lothal. The um, thing is, I didn't even know this audio books like existed, so I have no idea about the side of. Yeah, I was about to ask what audio drama. Yeah, what are you talking, talking about? about Hope? So there's, they released several things on StarWars.com, starring Steve Bloom playing the voice of oh. Alton Castle, and Alton Castle is pretty much the Fox News of the Empire. He is a propaganda machine, and he—it's just these audio clips of him playing. Alton, Alton Castle, and we do actually hear Alton in the show a few times in season one. Is he um, the guy in charge of like Empire Day? No, he's oh. only. We don't ever see him on screen. We oh, only hear his okay. voice come out of the radio because he's a radio host. Gotcha. Um, so he's not the guy in the Bad Batch talking about. No, that's somebody different. Right. Um, okay. He is. Uh, he's only in like an episode or two in season one. He's. I actually have his profile pulled up right here. He is in the episode. Um, Rise of the Old Master, Empire Day, Vision of Hope, Call to Action. And then he appears in a hologram in Secret Cargo and the Occupation in Doom. Um, and he is just essentially a Fox News host on a radio spewing propaganda. Um, and so we know from the web shorts that they released with him that Tua used all these funds. And she's actually like this really deep character and we in in the Thrawn novel, she's genuinely excited and was actually sad to lose Ryder as her boss, but eager to work with Price. So she doesn't do a good things in the show as well because she's trying to run this this planet and she's trying to fit within. But I think she never also got a chance to. Because what's interesting about the difference between the lower ranks and the middle management to me um is when you know too much, that's your breaking point. And that's where Callus was. Because Callus and two are both in the same room when Oresco and Grin are beheaded. And Callus smiles because he like passes up into that middle management and he knows this stuff happens. Tua's never seen that before. She's a propaganda baby. She All she knows is what she's been taught. So when she actually sees the true horrors, that's when she breaks. And that's the difference to me between the lower ranks and the middle management is if you don't break, then you can keep rising in the Empire. But if you do break your liability and you're out and to a military side. Yeah. On our government too. government. too. Right. She's a, she's a government official. She's a minister. Um, right. And so what I, what I really, I just, I, I love to, if it's not obvious, like one of my favorite scenes in all of rebels actually, which is so telling because it has all like three of the four branches together is the scene where, the Grand Inquisitor, Callus, and Tua are all standing between their district manager, Tarkin. And, and Tua's like, yeah, these rebels have a Jedi. And Tarkin turns and actively gaslights her to her face with an ex-Jedi standing behind her saying, there are no Jedi. The Jedi are dead. And Grande just looks at Tarkin like, okay, that's what we're telling people now. Cool. When, when Hope says Grande... That's your Grand Inquisitor. Yeah, for, for clarity's sake. Sorry, the Grand Inquisitor. Yes, yes. He's my grande boyfriend, who is like also like one of my favorite characters of Rebels. Um, so I, I, I love, that's why I love the first season so much, because you can actually see the groundwork of the Empire, because we're so used to seeing the Tarkins and stuff, and like the Vaders, and the Ularans, and all of them, and like Ularan too! Wow! What a great character good to go from, I'm sorry, I love the villains. Um, he goes from being this hero and this ally in Clone Wars to being this kind of very dark and conniving person in Rebels. Um, but also still having a good side about him because he genuinely cares about Callus and he's very upset about his betrayal. Anything yeah. to add about the government villains? Governor Price is the evilest, per evilest person in the show. <laughs> she, I mean, Price is great. Like, I actually, Price is 
such a great villain. And what I actually really love about the Thrawn 2016 novel is we actually get to see her origin um, and see how Ryder Azadi, actually, the governor, previous governor before her, blackmailed her mother, who was an innocent woman, and threw her mother in jail to keep resources away from the Empire to the rebels. But what was interesting about that is it put Arenda on her like path of vengeance. And of course, Arenda always had a place to like stop and go forth. But the thing about Arenda Price is she has the hubris to not back down. And mm -hmm. she just goes and goes and goes. And she actually clearly passes a point of no return and doesn't care. She doesn't give a ding dang about it. Like she, she's like, my point of no return is like way far behind me on the horizon to the point where Thrawn looks at her and is like, you committed a genocide. And she's like, cool, let's go to lunch. <laughs> like, Arinda is evil. And I love that about her because she's just not redeemable. And we get to the finale where Ryder even tries to extend an olive branch of like, come with us, we'll save your life. And she's like, no, nah, I'm going down with my ship, bro. You peace out. This is my ship. I'm Imperial. And I love Price. Like, she's my evil girl. And she's the very definition of girl boss. Like, she will kill people and murder people and has over 10,000 people's blood on her hands and doesn't care. I love her because I think so much, so often we redeem villains, but just to have someone who's evil to be evil is great. And she is that character. She is evil to be evil. Well, okay. Me not feeling all that strongly about her and always feeling that like, I'm not an evil for evil's sake person because I don't think anybody is ever evil for evil's sake. Even like what you just said, Ryder Azadi technically, technically operating on the side of our quote unquote good guys, even though he threw an innocent woman in prison. That's her reason. She's not evil for no reason. She yeah. is trying to stop the people who put her mother in jail and get so wrapped up in her cause. She forgets the reason she's there at what the I end of the day. But I, also so I don't even, I don't like not to take the wind out of your sails, but I don't think she's evil for evil's sake. I think she does have a reason to be the way she is. She starts that way, but she has every point to stop and turn back in the Thrawn novel. She actually has like 12 points of no return. And every time she's like, no, let's keep going. Because why would she, why would she go back? She saw what going back got her. And, and she, they set up from the beginning. She hates Lothal. And that's why I find it so interesting. She becomes the governor of Lothal because it opens the Thrawn novel and she's like, I hate this place. I can't wait to leave and get off of here. And then her mother was in prison and she was like, no, I'm doubling down on the place I hate. and I'm going to destroy it when I'm governor one day. And she becomes See, That governor. all sounds like perfectly reasonable motivation to me. Yeah. Yeah. She's so, uh, I, 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 she, the Thrawn novel to me is like the perfect companion to me, a better companion book than a new Dawn. And like, I love a new Dawn. Like it's, it's the Kanan Hera origin story. And to me, Count Vidian is one of the best villains of all of Star Wars. And I hate that he died in that book because he's such a good villain. I call him Business Vader. He's great. And he's terrifying. And he's scary. But to me, like, the Thrawn 2016 novel is the backstory of Lothal. It's the backstory of the politics. It's the backstory of the Empire. It's why everything is the way it is when we start season one. And to the point where I would almost argue it's required reading. Um, because there's just so much about Lothal and the structure and why and how it got there. And I love it. Someone that's, else a whole, that's a whole separate conversation that I'm, that I'm not going to start right now about whether or not a book should be required reading to watch a, t a television show. It's not to watch the show, but if you want to deep dive on the history of Lothal, I would argue that that's the book more than A New Dawn. 
Yeah, because a new dawn's not set on Lothal. Yeah. Yeah. But I do love a new dawn so much. I guess I should define like what Rebels lore t- is to me personally. To me, it's also the supporting materials too. Like that I mean, as I as yeah, I said, like there's I Santos a Rebels character to me. Like He's every every era has like their supporting material, their book, their mm-hmm. even the books are subdivided really by by story era. Yeah, because I would, even I would the, agree. Even Thrawn Alliances and Thrawn Treason are in the Rebels era too. Um, oh, that means Cumans Alli- Rebels Alliances is half a Clone Wars novel, though. Really? Yeah, but it's also between the it's the like five days that like Thrawn's gone or something like that. Oh, it has no. It's between season three and four. Oh, that means that my Cumans a Rebels character. Well, Cumans my favorite Rebels character then after Zeb. <laughs> okay, so wrapping up on the government then. I want to circle back to somebody we were talking about before, which is Hope's Grande Boyfriend, a.k.a. the Grand Inquisitor, and by extension, the Force users of Rebels on the villainous side. So I'm sorry, it's not Ezra, it's not Kanan, we're not talking, Ahsoka, we're not talking about them today. It is the villainous Force users. So we've got the Inquisitorious, so Darth Vader's Inquisitor squad, all made up of former Jedi, former Padawans. If you play Jedi Fallen Order, it is quite tragic how they got to where they are. Because you get to see all that. Um, we've got them. And we've got, obviously, Vader and Palps themselves. All part of the Force user branch of the Empire. Um, not counting Maul. We'll get to Maul later. He's a special case. We love him for it. All right. So, one thing I find about the Force users of Rebels in particular is just how tragic a contrast they make I know I said we weren't going to talk about Kanan and Ezra, and here I am about to do exactly that. How tragic a contrast they make to Ezra and Kanan, because Kanan very easily could have fallen into that if he had been caught, if he had been wrong place, wrong time. That could have been Kanan. And then Ezra, same thing. Like, if he had been found earlier or found at all prior to his encounter with the ghost crew, very easily could have fallen into this Inquisitor hellhole, essentially. That's so that's my, that's where my interest point lies with the Inquisitors is just how sad it is. My one day Star Wars dis- dissertation is how Kanan and Grande are narrative foils to each other. And if the Grand Inquisitor lived long enough, he could have been Ka- become Kanan. And he could have been on a callous journey because they are narrative foils and the entire time, almost step by step. And the only thing is, is that one fell and one didn't. And that's really the difference between them. Like that's my one day Star Wars dissertation. I will break down and write. And it's going to be like 20 pages long. (laughs) So yeah, I totally agree. Like that's one of the reasons why the Grand Inquisitor fascinates me so much. Um, I want to know his age because Palins can live three, four, 500 years. I'm like, are you a young Palin or have you been around since the high Republic? I need to know these things. Um, because the life of the temple guards is incredibly tragic too. You know, they have to give up their lives and their animate, like their, um, their autonomy pretty much. Um, and so I, I love the Charles soul comics that really details his backstory, but that reveal in season two, that he was a temple guard, my heart broke because he pretty much had to become this anonymous being that just lived for the Jedi and nothing else. And I love that character. I love the Grand Inquisitor. And I, I love all the Inquisitorious, man. The Seventh Sister is so great. And 
I wish we got to see so many more of them on screen, but I love like the four we had. So I know this is going to take it from the very insightful point Hope just made to a very superficial point that I'm about to make. But one thing I like about the Inquisitors is the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And I think y'all know what I mean when I say helicopter lightsabers. I love them. Do you know why they, they spin? No. So um, I found this out when I was when we were going through this on Jagunches and Jedi. The reason they spin is because they're not as skilled. They weren't trained to be skilled. Um, because if they were trained to be skilled, then they could best Vader or Palpatine and take their place. So they purposely made them spin to where they would be weaker than someone like Maul. And Maul is actually a skilled lightsaber person with like two that can wield both ends. They're not. So it's actually a cheap freebie. Um, so it's not to make them fly? No, no. It uh, Well, that too. But I, I, I will forever defend the helicopter lightsabers. I love them. I think they're great. And I hope we see one in the Kenobi show because I will cackle like a mad woman. Yeah, some people don't like it, but the Force exists. Who am I to argue with that? Can we talk about Vader showing up in the season two opener? Season two opener. Mm-hmm. He shows up in the very first scene of the first episode too. No, but I'm like a fake his first fan, full, I will be leaving his first waffles. full appearance, like that that season two like hour long special. Yes, I think Vader was used very wisely in Rebels. He was used sparingly, but he also helped like set up the premiere of season one. But then in season two, you understood why the Rebels were afraid of him or why he became like this boogeyman in the galaxy because he literally takes out like a whole fleet of rebels and on the thaw he scares the heck out of canon ezra he literally shoots sabine if she didn't have her beskar that girl was dead which is why vader is number one on candace's list yeah i'm kidding kidding, kidding. and keep in mind that was pre-rogue one so that was the scariest vader that we had since the original trilogy you know like we so like that was Vader scary in the original trilogy that then put it this way that was then probably the scariest Vader because that was pre-rogue one and so like when he just comes out like a boogeyman and like walking through flames and like lifting wreckage and carnage off himself like it's a very defining moment Mm -hmm. um I and then Twilight of the Apprentice was just emotional (laughs) okay yes so I do want to jump to Twilight of the apprentice since we are talking about vader i think like candace said they did use vader very well in rebels um arguably i would say unpopular opinion maybe a little bit better than in rogue one i'm mostly thinking about the hallway scene he was fine in the rest i just don't like the hallway scene um anyway that was my tangent but twilight of the apprentice was such a good payoff for somebody who really likes the clone wars because i like when star wars hurts me in a way that will get fixed later. Um, so to have this moment with him and Ahsoka that had really gone unresolved and even with the additional seventh season of the Clone Wars still kind of went unresolved. Like she never really finds out what becomes of Vader then. And I d- we didn't expect her to because this came out first. So for her to like find out what happened to Anakin Skywalker in this moment and it's not about anything else. It's just the two of them in this temple that's about to collapse on their heads is one of the moments I think about constantly. Like, just as a general Star Wars moment, not even, like, a Rebels moment. 
just like the the cracked mask and the fact that you can hear it's Matt Lanter and it's not really James Earl Jones anymore. And it's like, <laughs> that's when it really hurts. Twilight of the Apprentice is my favorite moment of all of Star Wars. All of Star Wars. Books, movies, TV shows, everything. It's my, it's my favorite moment of all of Star Wars. And it, as Arzu was saying, it was so rewarding. Wait, it was worth the wait, I think. You know, as, as an original, as someone who saw Clone Wars in the movie theaters and fell in love with Ahsoka Tano from that moment and is still to this day a diehard defender of that movie. It is my second favorite Star Wars movie. Um, it was worth the wait to have that moment of Ahsoka and Anakin back together and he, just the beautiful touch of hearing Matt Lanter's voice. Like that still makes me so emotional to hear the pain and the hatred in that moment and like the will he turn down, you know he doesn't, but like still like you're hopeful. And it was so well done to to someone who just in, in the animation is gorgeous and just the entire episode like even the dark side temple itself it's voiced by um oh my goodness um nika uh nika Fetterman, i think her name is she's the voice of asajj ventress so they really went all out with like animation on that one to like pull back all these callbacks to even have the very dark side temple itself voiced by a clone wars actress um and it just, that is my favorite moment of all of Star Wars. Like, no other Star Wars has ever topped that for me. And I remember where I was. I remember how I felt. And I still feel that way. And it was a perfect piece of Star Wars to a Clone Wars fan. Um, and I loved it. I loved it. And nothing ever topped. Like, like, that to me is the peak of Rebels. Like, everything after it, like, it never hit that high for me ever again. It's just, uh, uh, I, I love that piece of Star Wars. Same. Nothing ever makes it sing like that. Ugh. But then we got Palpatine at the end. Actually, before we have Palpatine, I do want to talk about one more person in, in the Force branch that I find very interesting that I actually wish we had a ton more of because he's very interesting and we don't know a lot about this and I hope we get to see more of someone like him in the Acolyte. But Minister Hayden, um, he is one of Palpatine's advisors digging up the Lothal temple, trying to break into the world between worlds in season four. And he's just fascinating. He's just, he almost seems like a kind art, like museum curator. Cause he's just talking art with Sabine. And like, they're like debating the artwork of the Lothal temple, but he knows about the force. He's a non-force user, but he works for Palpatine as an advisor. And I, we don't know if he's a Sith acolyte, but I would go so far to call him an acolyte because he's essentially breaking the temple in half for Palpatine. And he knows all about the world between worlds. He knows that he's a Sith Lord. And I thought Haydn was a very underused force character because he, there's just so much about him we don't know. The only other person is Palpatine. It is cool to see Palpatine. I actively dislike Palpatine. <laughs> Yeah, no, but I know, but I I like how he's presented in Rebels because he actually comes off as a kindly old man, you know, like his his prequel self. That's his trick. That's how he gets you. I know. And that's why it's delightfully amazing. And they brought back like Ian McDermott to voice him, which is amazing. Part time because I feel like his voice kept changing. It did. So originally it was Sam Witwer. um, And then they actually went back and redubbed with Ian for Disney Plus. Was Tim Curry not there at some point? Tim Curry was was the voice um, in 
Clone Wars because the original Palpatine voice actor passed away suddenly. So I Tim see. Curry came in and filled in the rest of Palpatine for Clone Wars. Okay, I'm like, Tim and it's Curry great got involved at some point. I love Tim Curry. But, okay. He's very Tim Curry. He's <laughs> like, hello, Marlon Savage. I'm Palpatine. I'm like, oh, Tim Curry, I love you. So, yeah, no, I I love Palpatine also in this too, so. All right. So the last Force user we're going to talk about, not falling under this branch, but I feel like he'll just sulk all the more and scream in the desert about it if I don't include him, is everyone's favorite dramatic Dathomirian king, Darth Maul. Or Maul, if you prefer. So... We love Darth Maul, my favorite Rebels villain, I think. And he's not strictly a Rebels character, obviously. He appears all over the place. But he's still my favorite, my favorite baddie of Rebels. But uh, before I go, Candace, do you want to? Yes. I would like to make an argument that Maul in Rebels is not quite a villain. He is an anti-villain, which is an opposite of an anti-hero. He is someone with heroic goals, which is ending the Empire, right? That's like he wants his revenge on Palpatine. And that's the whole thing is he has like he's willing to do it in bad ways, like manipulate a child, Ezra. And, you know, his intentions. Somewhat good. It's not the worst intention. What? It's not the worst intentions anybody's ever had. And, you know, he yeah, he wants revenge. He wants the empire to fall. He just has a bad way of executing it. That's my thing. I'm all. Okay. But let's, can we talk about his arc for a minute? Just because like, I know everybody always goes like straight to twin sons and how yeah, I know, but there's so much hot that take. He... Twin, hot take. Twin sons is a bad episode. <gasps> I know. I, I love hot twin take. sons. I love, I love the final five minutes. The rest of it is the the first part of it, all that with Ezra is a sunny day in the void, but of rebels. Sunny day in the minutes. void is the droids episode from Clone Wars that I don't like. Mm-hmm. If you take off, take off. But them this all has a they... good payoff, which is the difference. It makes the whole episode good as a result. Sunny day in would... the void doesn't have a good payoff. No, it has a great ten final ten like final seven minutes. The first half sucks. Okay, but like I'm talking about like the <laughs> I know I know the mall part. I like, told you it was a hot take. Part. My That's other fair. hot take is that Maul is doesn't have a great arc. <laughs> I think he does. I think he does too. I think okay. it's com- it's complex and it's different. And I am very intrigued to know how he went from the leader and solo of Crimson Dawn mm-hmm. to Old Master mm-hmm. and Twilight of the Apprentice, where we see him at the end of season two. And like- oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead. And I really enjoyed like how they wrote in this like tension between Ahsoka and Maul, even though we hadn't seen the Siege of Mandalore yet because it hadn't been produced. But we still, it still works perfectly once you know what their last meeting was like. So I applaud them for that. I, I agree. And I think the reason the Rebels arc for Maul is good, maybe this is just me, but as cool as Maul is in the Clone Wars, and I'm not here to dispute that, I think Maul is awesome in the Clone Wars. He's sexy in the Clone Wars. He is very sexy. In the- okay, sexy. listen, but Savage Opress is also there, and that's where my mind goes. But anyway, um, why I think his Rebels arc works so well is, 
for all that he is very sexy in the Clone Wars, he does not have a ton of direction. It is He's very cray. He other than that, yeah. other than he dislikes Kenobi, other than he he is with Rebels as added context with him sort of trying to kill those who he perceives as having done him wrong, thinking it's Kenobi, and then circling back to actually Palpatine's the root of the problem and then having that hope in Luke at the end because he realizes in his last moments where the root of his pain is. Like, it really comes full circle for him. Without the Rebels context, Clone Wars Maul looks directionless. And I think Rebels, like, brings all of it full circle. And that's why I think it works so well. Like, I don't think Maul as a character would work beyond cool aesthetic without Rebels. And that's that's why I think... That's why, like, talking about his Rebels arc being so strong, because it's not an arc if Rebels doesn't happen. Personally, I find him to be the most sympathetic of the villains, mm -hmm. just because of how much he's lost and how much we've seen him lose. And even though, yes, he's done some terrible things, but we know that he, we know from Clone Wars, his history, how he did not choose this life. He was given away as a child into this. And just seeing him lose his brother, seeing him lose his his criminal empire too you know just lose everything and he tries to replace his brother with Ezra he's trying to create he's trying to get back what he lost and he, he needs some grief counseling I think all right here's my mall thing I do agree I, I spoke a little strongly before Maul does have a good arc I just don't think it's executed well um, because pretty much minus Twinch Sons and minus Twilight of the Apprentice, all the other mall episodes in the middle are repetitive. They're the exact same plot and they often derail what's happening and they don't affect the overall plot. They come off as like, the rebels are doing our thing. Oh, Ezra Maul's here again. All right, I'll go, I'll go deal with them. And then Maul runs off into the distance and he's like, all right, what are we doing again? Back to work. All right. And like, that's how the mall episodes function. Um, and to the point where a few of them feel like they're actually derailing the story. Like, take Ezra falling to the dark side, which we, when season two ended, it felt like it was going to be this huge big deal. It's an episode. And it's all wrapped up nicely with a bow on top, and Ezra never falls to that again. Because Maul was just like, hello, Ezra, hoo hoo hoo, like, I'm doing my evil stuff. And then he scurries away in the darkness again, and they're like, all right, well, Ezra's not evil anymore, back to work. And so, like, that's my thing. Is I disagree with that, because Ezra, like, has this breakthrough with Kanan. He has an emotional breakthrough. Yeah. And I feel like that's, you know, why he's not evil anymore. I don't feel like and it's just, like, you know. Yeah. But that's yeah. that's the thing. It's an episode, you know. And every time Maul comes into the show, it feels like a disruption of just, like, the rebels are having these great things. The rebellion's growing. They're all going on character arcs. And then Maul shows up, and it's like, oh, yeah, Maul's here. We have to deal with his stuff now. All right, let's go deal with Maul stuff, and then like he runs off again for another like ten episodes, and then he'll come back. It, you know, and that's well, how I, feel. I mean, like, that's life. You try to do this one goal, but things get in the way, like a crazy former Sith with robot legs. I, I mean, is it like a crazy relative? I mean, I <laughs> just he is yeah, like a crazy yeah. uncle that just he, keeps. I mean, he back. is, but like, and I, I, I know I'm a total hypocrite because I'm all for realism in Star Wars. But, like, not to the point where, A, his episodes are very rep repetitive. They're just going over the same beats. Ezra's not growing. He's not doing anything. Nobody's growing. 
Except for, and it's just like, well, it's just like, hello, I'm crazy. Or hey, bye, I see you in 10 episodes. Like, that's my mall thing. Like, he has a great arc, but I feel like he constantly derails the show. A lot. But I said it's a hot save. Was it not Maul's craziness that led them to finding the Darksaber, though? It was. So it's not that he his episodes don't advance the plot, because that was a huge plot point, no? Yeah, and but that by that time, it's repetitive, because we've already gotten to that point repeatedly. <laughs> like, the structure of his episodes is what... That's the execution. Like, that's my issue, is the execution of his episodes. That's what bothers me. That's fair. Yeah. I feel Though like the- Maul is like a bad rash you just can't get rid of kind of thing. <laughs> That's how I took it in the story, at least. Well, the the repetition that Hope mentions is making me think of, I think Sam Witwer made this point, but it might have been somebody else. It might have been Fred Prince Jr. I don't know. But somebody making the point of Maul oh, being, it's Freddy. it was right about being Sisyphus, right? Mm-hmm. That's what it makes me think of. Because like Sisyphus, which for those of you who, you know, I love that rant, by the way. It's so no, it was good. a good rant, but like for, for anybody so who's not like up on their mythology, like it's been a while. Like Sisyphus is the guy with the boulder rolling up a hill, and then it keeps rolling back down, like that guy. So Maul being Sisyphus is like he is not learning his lesson. Like Sisyphus's journey is also quite repetitive. So I understand it being frustrating in a in the larger sense of of a series. But for a character to keep resetting to ground zero and constantly causing the same problem over and over again, this is somebody who is stuck in his own cycle and can't break out of it. I think where it also actually extra bothers me is season three and season four is when Hera and Zeb get majorly sidelined. And so, like, especially Zeb. Like, Zeb has, like, nothing. Like, season three and past. Like, there's so little Zeb content and Hera is mostly sidelined for, like, Kanan stuff. And so I think that's where it bothers me is I see these episodes and I'm just like, we're sidelining major cast members and major characters, main characters for this. And that's where it bothers me too. But I I also, I will say, I I know I'm in the minority. Season three and season four to me are messes. And I think they're structurally not great seasons. But that's a me thing, especially season four. Season four, I think it's horribly weak and a terrible season. <laughs> it has good episodes and good moments, but as a season as a whole, especially if you're a Zeb or Hera fan, whoo, I got problems. But I also know I'm in the minority. No, so. but that is a good point that like they got sidelined in their own show. Mm-hmm. So arguably questionable that they sidelined the aliens, but after after the season three finale and the opening of season four and that opening scene, Callus and Zeb are never in the same room together until the finale of the show. Um, I find- can I just say something about that? Yeah, the aliens got sidelined, but the POC main characters all had a time to shine, which I really appreciate. And again, I will go on and on about Sabine and how in season three, she became a main character too, along with Ezra. And it did the story the format did change i feel like the format did change in season season three once like sabine came back to help um ezra with uh, uh, with chopper base that changed the format changed the focus was on the two of them because yeah even kanan gets a back seat until it's his time to go you know (laughs) really and that's and that's really how it breaks down like who's your favorite character my favorite character is zeb 
Right. <laughs> so, and, and that's how, because that's that's often what I hear is like people whose favorite characters are Ezra and Sabine, they love season three and season four, which I totally get. And so that's, I, I also am a very firm believer that season four needed to be more than 12 episodes. It's It's a half season. If it was a full-fledged season, I probably wouldn't have this problem because then everybody would get a little bit of time. That's I can't fair. argue POC on this one, though. It makes me sound like an asshole. <laughs> no, no. No, no. no I, just, I wanted it. to bring but it the, up. When you say, oh, the aliens got sidelined, I'm like, yeah, but... I'm not, I POC. never said aliens. I said aliens. No, oh. Ours you did, and I just wanted to point I out I was thinking that. adult characters, actually. The, all the adults get sidelined. Well, Kanan still has a shrunk arc, and he's there in the Mandalorian. Yeah. Eric gets roofied. Well. For fun. I hate while it. While pregnant. While pregnant. I Ooh, hate it. He's also no. tortured while pregnant. You oh, were on no. that episode with me, Candace, man. We yeah, fought on that one. <laughs> I was like, oh. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard, especially rewatching it after you know she's pregnant at this time. Yeah, yeah. Price being evil. And, there we go. And her final Okay, you know what? I take back everything I said about Price because what the. I mean, Price mm. didn't know she was. Maybe she did. But it still it doesn't matter. It's she so she, she didn't know she was in love with the father of her child. I don't think Price knew that Hera was pregnant. That's actually not my structural problem. We're not going there. We're not going there. That's one of my structural problems with season four. We're, no, no, we're not going there again. <laughs> we can't go there again. I have we'll get zero effort to do that. And we're talking about villains. We're talking about villains. And I will not be the villain in Candace's Fine. The villain today. of the story is Dave Filoni. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> But I no, no, I okay. really appreciate the way they handled um, the villains, especially in season one, how the Grand Inquisitor you think is going to be this huge, big bad for the entire series, right? Because he's the Grand Inquisitor. And then he ends up killing himself at the end he's of season one. We also see... What? In season one, he's just the Inquisitor. He doesn't get the title Grand until the second season. He's dead in the second season. I know, but that's when he actually gets the title of Grand. So that was part of the mystery of, is there more? So leaving season one, we actually didn't know if there were more Inquisitors. Because he had just the title of the Inquisitor. And it wasn't until the seventh sister showed up. And she was like, yeah, you killed the Grand Inquisitor. And everybody went, wait, there's more of you? Yeah, but but just because they didn't know he was called the Grand Inquisitor doesn't mean... He stopped we, being the Grand Inquisitor. Yeah, we the fans didn't know though as we progressed through the seasons naturally. But that was he part was of still, the mystery of it. But he was still the Grand Inquisitor. He didn't become Grand Inquisitor in season two. So I think you're misunderstanding what I meant, but okay. Yeah, because you're like, oh, he did. You said he wasn't the Grand Inquisitor until season two, but he's dead by then, and he's. It sounded more like you were saying he got a promotion when he died. No, no, no. He was. <laughs> I'm talking about his labels between season one and season two as we progress naturally through the, the season. Okay, but I think everyone does know him as the Grand Inquisitor, right? Now. <laughs> okay, okay. Then let's go with that, I think. Cause... But okay, and then yeah, the two goons and the Imperial getting literally beheaded. And <sighs> yeah. it's just like, it really raises the stakes. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed how they like, because we were having this you know, I love season one. I love the character building. It's in Lothal, and I feel like it really shows, gives a chance for the relationships to breathe, and you get to see this family coming together. But yeah, it builds up, and I think Vader was a nice touch in that. But yeah, I enjoyed that part of the story. But yeah, we're off topic again. I'm sorry. 
that's one of my favorite parts about um is the stepping stone of the show because season one is light and fun it's because we're not even forming the rebellion yet it's just this one little family and so everything's light and fun it's just kind of hijinks of the week and then things get serious because the death of the Grand Inquisitor is the catalyst for everything else. Um, because that is what pulls in Vader. And it's the next stepping stone up. And then we step up to Tarkin. And then we, because when Tua and Kallus are not getting stuff done, Tarkin comes in. And then Tarkin steps up to Thrawn. And so every season is a step up to the next big bad until we build us all the way up to Palpatine in season four. And that's what I love about the structure of this. So... Obviously, this is an episode we are talking about Rebels villains, and I don't think I would feel right concluding this episode without properly mentioning the big blue himself, Grand Admiral Thrawn. Blue husbando. Or as Hope calls him, her blue husbando. So as far as I, I, I distinctly remember seeing Thrawn pop up on Rebels the first time I watched it. And my first thought was, oh, it's not the old bearded guy from the Heir to the Empire cover, because that's who I thought Thrawn was um, until that moment. So that was certainly an eye-opening experience, and I think I'm showing my ignorance a little bit with that. But he's certainly one of the more interesting ones, because for all intents and purposes, he should be like another Tarkin, just based on aesthetic alone. But he's not. He's quite like sensitive i don't want to go that far he does torture people but like i don't know he doesn't operate on the same level of imperial villainy at least to me that's just my thought on thrawn hope i can see like the barely restrained words longing to break free oh no i was just thinking through my 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 thoughts um no rebels was my first real introduction to thrawn and I fell for him. Like, he is just this incredibly fascinating villain. Because, And I think what I like about him is because he's so drastically different from everybody else. And it, and a lot of it is just, like, little things. I, I was actually having this conversation with my friend on my show about how we were talking about Thrawn in the context of the Mandalorian and, like, how, whether or not he could even function in the First Order. Um, and a lot of that is the traits in everything we see in Rebels. There's just a lot of like little things that stand out that makes him so drastically different. And a lot of that is he does respect the enemy in a way that the, a lot of the Rebels or a lot of the rest of the Empire doesn't, which makes him so different from like a Tarkin type. Because what, one example I think of is when Tiber Saxon wanted to use the Mandalorian killing machine on his fellow people and Thrawn looks him in the eye and says, dude, your people will turn against you if you do that. And Tiber was like, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And Thrawn goes, okay, your funeral. I'm not bailing you out. But I feel like something like that is like, Tarkin would be like, yes, murder your people, Tiber. Go for it. And I'll come pick you up on the sidewalk. <laughs> and that's why I love Thrawn. It's just stuff like that. Like him and Yularen have this beautiful camaraderie in the show. And to the point where you can tell that they highly respect each other because Yularen is this character who is essentially the FBI of the Empire. Like that's what that's what the uh, agents are. Like he's in charge of like Agent Callus and stuff like that. They are the FBI of the Empire essentially. And just how he treats you, Lauren, even with respect, with you, Lauren being upset that Callus has turned on him and 
not being angry like well you did this your he's your product he's like no like i'm so sorry that this happened that you know we'll catch her catch the real mole and he's just so smart like able to see through calluses everything and is especially like when he's trying to pull one over on you lieutenant list because thrawn bless him knows that lieutenant list is the dumbest space nazi in the world and cannot be in the mall <laughs> so it's just there's so much there and this show made me deep dive on that character because I always knew kind of knew who Thrawn was. But that's when I fell in love with him. And that's when I started deep diving and finding out this like incredibly rich history with him. And I would not be a Thrawn fan or uh, my, my dear blue husbando if not for Rebels. That really gave this full, beautiful, like the, the respect he has for Hera. Their rivalry is so good. Their rivalry par uh, parallels like Kanan and the Grand Inquisitors. And the rivalry of Hera and Thrawn and how they outwit each other. With Thrawn having all the resources in the world and Hera having bubblegum spit and a wish. And how they out chess maneuver each other. And he respects the heck out of her for it. That's this kind of thing that I love about Thrawn. Yeah, because he doesn't he doesn't operate like the other ones. Like, yeah, there is that mutual respect there? Yeah, I mean that's Despite why he. The, yeah, that's why he hates Price. <laughs> like he despises Price because she doesn't follow the rules and the laws, and he knows that she's despicable. And but he respects the heck out of Hera, and they're they have one of the best rivalries of the show. Yeah, I would I would agree. I will say, earlier when I said he tortures people, I did get him and Price mixed up for a second, and I'm like, he tortured a pregnant lady, and I'm like, no, that was Price. So no, I would no, like he to blew up Mr. Sumar. Well, yes, but I would yeah. like to retract my torture statement because that yeah. was factually he did, correct. He did blow up Mr. Sumar to make a point. What are your thoughts on Thrawn, Candace? I read uh, the Timothy Zane legend books as a child, an older child, like 10 or 11. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed um, that character, especially. He was one that I always felt was intriguing, even, you know, as a young kid. And I was thrilled when I saw the trailer that he was going to be a part of it. And it was really exciting that this, this big character from Legends was becoming part of our world. I do yeah. like that his his arrival into canon is supposed to be like, I know it's old and like the spoiler window has passed, but I like that it's supposed to be this big thing for Rebels. And when you go on Disney Plus and look at it, like he's on the poster. So like... The surprise is not. It actually bothers me that the Disney Plus poster uses their season four things because I'm like, someone can tell that Kanan's blind. You could tell it yourself really it's a mask. It bothers me. No, it no, has I know. scars it's... across his eyes, like maskless Kanan. I'm like, why are you using their season four picture? Oh, I thought, um, at least last time, I, my Rebels, it was just Ezra and Sabine and Thrawn and maybe Maul. <laughs> That's how surprise, they were. Thrawn and Maul. Yeah, it's like Maul's here because Maul is also supposed to be a surprise. Oh dear. All right. So to wind this down and talking about villains, let's gradually progress from villains to heroes with two characters who did exactly that with Arx. Do you like my segue? Please say yes. Okay. Yes. So, I was so confused for a second. I was like, thank wait. you. We're segueing. We are. <laughs> no, I, I have like the honorable mentions of Vizago and Hondo on this too. There we go. So we are we are really going for this. So obviously, you know, we talked about redemption. We did talk about Callus a little bit earlier, but I want to circle back. Callus, Fenrau, 
Hondo, Visago. Candace and I talked about Callus a little bit earlier. Candace, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add. Because Hope didn't get to say anything. So before we throw it to Hope, do you have anything um, you want to add? It's my second favorite character. His, his is my second favorite character arc in the show. First is obviously Sabine. Right. But yeah. Because of the redemption. Yeah, because of his redemption. And yeah. What I wanted to say, um, it actually ties in a lot with uh, what I was saying about Tua, about like how Rebels showcases the Imperial propaganda machine so well. Um, one of my, like the most interesting points of season one to me is actually seeing like the news channels, the posters, hearing the radio playing and like seeing what they're playing um, to pretty much brainwash their citizens. And there's that moment in like old Joe's bar where they're like, it's Empire Day. You need to be playing the empire's broadcast and joe's like i don't want to but okay um and so the importance of propaganda is is on full display in rebels and the way this ties back to callus is in the honorable ones which to me after after twilight of the apprentice is my favorite episode and it's so fascinating because this is exactly how you dismantle somebody who has been raised to raised on lies who is believing in this cause and you dismantle it with the truth. And that's essentially what that episode is, is Callus spends the entire episode spewing to Zeb, essentially Nazi propaganda and just spewing propaganda. And Zeb is just taking a little needle and poking holes into it, which is really fascinating because when you have the truth presented to him and the propaganda that Callus was raised on, which is his life, is completely dismantled. He has nothing else. And it makes those earlier scenes that we saw throughout season one of just like this machine that's just churning out all the stuff. And, and it's actually very reminiscent of a lot of totalitarian governments in our real world of how they just churn that out. Um, it's really beautiful to see that dismantling of the tr just using simple truths to where and Zeb doesn't even like take them with him. It's Callus has to sit with the truth and then make the choice to change. And that's why I really hate that we didn't get to see that journey with Tua. Um, because to me, like Tua could have gone two ways. She could have either been like a a Callus character and completely redeemed, or she could have been in for her own skin. And we don't know which one she would have chose, which makes her like this un untapped potential. Um, but it's also a Dave Filoni show and he loves killing women for man plots. So um, it's very fitting for his kind of show. But I I love that about Callus and Zeb in that episode, especially Callus is because he was raised on lies and his realization of being raised on lies is this beautiful moment of hope in our real world that even like people who are really far lost and Callus has done some horrible things. He murdered a guy in the first episode as a gag um by kicking him off a bridge and when he starts realizing the weight of the things he's done and why it means so much of him being caught in this genocide that he he didn't realize the depths of until he was there and it was either leave orders and die or follow orders like it's it becomes this incredibly gray area especially when we find about about Saul Guerrero's partisans because how often how another thing was the gray area of the rebels on this Saul Guerrero could be argued as a villain 
he murders people constantly. He tries to finish a genocide for the Empire when they go to Geonosis. And that's what I love about Rebels is there's so many gray areas. There's so many antagonists. There's so many like wishy-washy things because the Zaga leaves them to die in episode two. That would be the droid episode. So episode two. The Zaga leaves them to die to become like this fun uncle by the end of the story. Like this fun guy fighting for the, the against the Empire by season four. Hondo is a pirate and he stands up because he loves Ezra. And there's so many gray areas to where even like Mon Mothma is gets a little grayness. Saul oh, Guerrero started on Mon Mothma. But Saul Guerrero is the one I, I think about the most of the gray area villain antagonist writing line when he wants to murder Click Clack. And if he murders Click Clack, that is the end of the Geonosians. That is the end of their gen genocide that the Empire started. And that is like, and, and that's what I love about Rebels to kind of like wrap all this up. It's just like, there are so many, I love a story that has shades of villains, that has shades of antagonists, that has shades of heroes to where it's not clear black and white. And Rebels has such a beautiful layering of this, of they're all bad. But when you have these conversation of how bad is Lieutenant List versus Thrawn? How bad is like the Grand Inquisitor versus someone like Finn Rao, which is another great character of that started off in the bad guy and just be kind of, where is he? Is he alive? <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Book of Boba Fett. We don't even know if Finn Rao is alive. Um, and Bo-Katan. I mean, Bo-Katan has always rode the gray line. Mm -hmm. I mean, hell, she holds a knife to Sabine's neck and threatens to kill her. <laughs> so, you know, like, that's I what I, like that's what I love about this show is the, the layers of grayness and nothing is black and white i feel like with star wars most most media like this but we're talking about star wars um this is going to sound so glib and i don't mean it that way we can't hold they have killed someone against them because there's not a single character in this show that this show this universe whatever that doesn't have blood on their hands unless they're yeah. like a child and even then it's questionable. Yeah. So Sabine so point blank blank shoots a man in the face in like episode that the cadet episode, whatever. Yeah, episode like the cadet episode. They shoot a man point blank in the face. They have all killed people, hero or like hero or villain of the story. They have all killed people. A lot of them have killed people that didn't deserve it. I know there's that argument about like the janitors on the Death Star, and something like Lost Stars shows us that like oh. most people working on the Death Star, it was Art's their only way out of. It was their only way to get a job was to I'm work for the Empire. And that's what they ended I will up. never be over Jude. Jude's death still hurts me to this day. Like, right. Like Jude was a nerd. Jude just kind of wanted to like mind her own business. And Jude was on the Death Star. Like, yeah. I mean, so, and like Luke, Luke Skywalker killed Jude. Jude didn't really do anything except want to get out of her hometown. So, and like, that's tying that because like you have people like the Sumars who are, friends of Ezra's parents, but they're technically Imperials because they work in the factories. And we know this from Star Wars Resistance when Tam is talking about the First Order coming and she was like, my grandfather worked in Imperial factories. Was he a bad guy? If we're going back and white, technically, yes. He was an Imperial. He was considered an Imperial. But we know from the shading that that's not true because we see that the Sumars get their home burnt down. Lieutenant List literally burns their farm to the ground so they have no choice but to work in the factories. And they force people into imperialism. And, like, that's something that, like, I love about Rebels is we get to see, like, those shades. Um, 
because you're right. And to me, that's a huge difference between Rebels and Clone Wars. They're killing droids in Clone Wars. In Rebels, they're killing people. All right. On that, they're killing people note. Um, <laughs> Mazel I'm going to wrap this up on that because I don't think I could find a funnier note to end this show on than that. Just for pure uh, tonal chaos. Did anybody have any final thoughts that they wanted to add? I know, Hope, you could go on for hours, but final thoughts about what we've talked about. Your podcast, I, I mean, easily, because I, you know, there's Lieutenant List, that's a beautiful boy that I could talk forever about, and there's just, there's so much. There's there's such a wealth of villains and rebels, and just, Yularen is just this fascinating character of how he went from a Jedi-loving hero to a villain. Like, there's just, there's so much. This is Yularen's, like, first Imperial-speaking lines, too. So, so good, so good, so good. Talk about, there's there's so much to talk about. I could, yeah, uh, someone stop me, because I could easily talk another two hours. So, I am going to ask you then, Hope, if you could tell everybody where they can find you online, should they like to hear you talk about this for several more hours? Um, well, of course, you can find me at the Geeky Waffle because I write with you guys. And I also have a podcast called J Guys and Jedi where we have over 300 episodes. We've gone through all of Clone Wars, all of Star Wars Rebels, all of Resistance. And we are just now finishing up season one of The Mandalorian and about to start Bad Batch. Um, but we break down every episode of Rebels in about two uh, hour and a half, two hour long chunks. So we deep dive on every single episode. We talk about the backstories. We talk about behind the scenes. So yeah, if you want a really deep, deep dive, but I will say it's not safe for work. So it is wrong. She don't listen with the kiddos in because I definitely talk about my blue husbando and my grande boyfriend and parts that they have on their bodies. <laughs> so <laughs> it is a raunchy show. Um, but yeah, I, and Candace has been on the show. She knows how deep we deep dive. And uh, Candace, where can they find you online? You can find me at Candace is a geek on Twitter and that will have all my stuff. All right. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at Arzu Amin, and that's where you get Space Waffles updates as well. Um, collectively as a network, we are at geeky underscore waffle on Twitter, the geeky waffle at Facebook, on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. And we are also at thegeekywaffle.com. That's where you can find all of our recaps, reviews, all of that fun stuff. And as Candace mentioned earlier, we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash thegeekywaffle. And that's where you can get things like access to our Discord server and our waffles after dark. So thank you all so much for listening. Happy Rebels Remembered Day and may the waffles be with you. I was just going to say a very special thank you to John and Marie for running Rebels Remembered Day too. Yes. Special thank you to John and Marie as well. So yes, thank you all for listening.